Hello and welcome to Bondcast, a podcast series where we discuss our views on the latest themes and events shaping rates markets. I'm Imogen Bakra, Head of UK Rate Strategy, and I'm joined today by our Global Market Specialists, Kevin Cummins and Joanne Spadigan. Okay, so it's been Sintra this week, which felt like one of what would have been the main event, really, with not a particularly busy data calendar or much else going on. So I think we should do a quick whistle-stop tour of our views um, or what we thought were the kind of key takeaways, particularly from the policy panel yesterday, which obviously had uh, Bailey, Lagarde and Powell on. Um, So, Kevin, I'll start with you. What do you think was the kind of key take-home message from from Powell yesterday? Yeah, I mean, he did sound... uh a bit more hawkish than he did at his press conference after the June FOMC meeting, as well as his semi-annual monetary policy testimony. He seemed to focus more on that, uh, you know, at least two more hikes are in the uh, offering for this this year um, and kind of emphasize that there's maybe some risk of even more than that. So um, I think relative to his recent rhetoric, um, he chose to emphasize uh, more of the hawkish spin, um, despite not having too much new information between now and, you know, say a week ago when when uh, he spoke at a semi-annual monetary policy testimony. So I think there there was a, a little bit more of, um, of a focus for him on the inflation side uh, than I would have imagined, given that the backdrop hasn't changed since last week. And what about you, Joanne? Obviously, Lagarde was on, on that same panel, which struck quite a hawkish tone. Did she change your mind on anything or or was she just sticking to the kind of um you know line that we heard two weeks ago yeah so i think the Lagarde really did stick to scripts in a lot of ways she did i think come across quite hawkish in the sense that the key kind of quotes i took from her really were on the level as well as the length of time in which rates have to stay elevated so for me i think the key message really was a higher for longer kind of fading this rate cut narrative a bit based on what she said and i think that um, other than that as well, she didn't really talk very much about weaker data. The focus really just was on underlying inflation and inflationary pressure. So it just seemed like that really is a key focus for the ECB. So not really much change in terms of how we see things based on what she said yesterday. I think that higher for longer kind of line is, is very similar to what Bailey was peddling, you know. Not that we thought that this would be the place where he would push back on market pricing, but, you know, markets have have repriced higher since the Bank of England meeting last week. And they're now looking for a peak, you know, 6.2 percent, which is kind of well above where the bank had previously signaled that rates would need to get to. But actually, the only pushback that we got from Bailey from market pricing was on the hawkish side when he was talking about the fact that it was interesting. I think he said that markets price in a cut as soon as they do given this kind of persistent inflation backdrop, especially in the UK. Um, and yeah, again, like like Powell and, and Lagarde, he kind of struck a pretty hawkish tone around the resilience of the economy and, and this, this kind of persistent inflationary pressures that, that mean that they're going to need to do more rather than less. I don't think he, um, you know, anybody watching what, what he said would have thought that that was a green light to think that rates would go below 6%. And as you said, Joanne, it's, it's all about higher for longer. Okay, then, Kevin, I guess moving slightly away from Cintron and looking forwards a little bit, we still have this, or do we still have this non-consensus view for a hold again in July? I mean, Powell was questioned around whether, you know, they might go every other meeting or what the outlook might be, but 
he he seemed to suggest that there was more tightening still to come. Does that change your view on on um, the July meeting? Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly does complicate it to some extent. I mean, you have to question whether or not um, the bar for hiking is all that high, given that he's talking potentially about moving at consecutive meetings and he wouldn't take it off the table. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's only four scheduled FOMC meetings this year. I, they wouldn't go intermeeting uh, to, to hike rates um, that I think, you know, it, it does put pressure on the idea that they could pause again in July. Um, you know, when they've when he described at the June FOMC press conference, um, he talked about it in that um, it's not just one employment report and CPI that they get between June and July, but the pause in June allowed them to see how the data came in in May and June since the early May meeting and then July. So he kind of looked at it on a three-month basis. From that perspective, you know, a lot of the decision, I think, will be pretty clear um, from next week's employment report, for instance. Um, You know, if they see a really weak employment report, that may allow them to kind of think about things and a little bit longer than they were, you know, say like last year when they were moving very aggressively. He also in June talked about, you know, a pause is very much uh, appropriate as you're getting to this sufficiently restrictive level where they think they're pretty close, but it just allows them to maybe step down the speed of hikes. So, you know, I, I, I wouldn't say that our call, you know, our, our baseline call of, of a pause is necessarily, uh, you know, a, a something that needs to be changed immediately. But I think if you get another strong employment report, the the weight of evidence it probably isn't there for them to to pause. I th- I think that given that there's only four meetings and they're probably their base case seems like at least two hikes. There's only four meetings in this year. They presumably they want to go sooner rather than later, um, and then remain restrictive for a while, at least in their expectation um, that that July is is certainly a live meeting. They they signaled that in June, and and they're running out of runway, I think, for our forecast if we get another strong employment report. So, you know, that really will kind of give them the cover that the. So far, the moderation that we've seen in inflation um, that he's acknowledging since last year probably isn't sufficient enough for them to go on kind of an extended pause of a of no change in June and no change in July. And then, you know, the longer that goes, the more uh, unlikely that they're going to reach their goal of of two you know hikes this year that they showed in their dot plot. Thinking about the data then, we're recording this on Thursday afternoon, fresh off the uh, GDP data and the claims data in the US. Um, And that's driven a significant, well, sell-off at the front end. So we're seeing front end yields significantly higher and the curve flattening. Is that a justified move? Is that claims data a kind of uh, bellwether, if you like, for what the employment report next week might show? How are you thinking about today's data in the context of Fed action, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, it seems a little bit exaggerated to me that you would sell off this much based on one initial jobless claims number. Um, 
the the latest number is past the timing of the survey week for uh, for the June employment report. So it has no relevance necessarily to next week's uh, June data for payrolls. Um, but you know, from the perspective of we started to see some cracks in the labor market with these jobless claims the prior three weeks, they really moved up a noticeable bit from the earlier trend that there was some hints that the labor market is softening. Now, this pullback in, in the latest report may just be noise. I mean, there was a holiday uh, of Juneteenth in there, the federal holiday that um, you know, is a new one in, in the US as far as the the data don't reflect updated seasonal adjustment uh, factors just yet uh, based on this holiday. So it's unclear whether or not the latest move is just noise or if it is a, a real good indication that, you know, the earlier rise is probably exaggerated in claims, something like that. So we'll, we'll need to see some additional weeks to see if the underlying trend in claims is certainly higher than it was. Um, and I think, you know, the Q1 revision to GDP is pretty much old news. It, it tells us what was happening in January, February, March. And by now, it, it you know, we're finishing up the second quarter here. So, um, but it only probably added to the um, narrative that the economy still seems to be fairly resilient, especially with regard to the labor market. Um, so I, I think it's kind of piggybacking on the idea that um, you're still pretty far from uh, the Fed's inflation objective, but you know you're you're at a still consistent with a very tight labor market with the claims data. Well, very 2023 of the market to overreact to one data point. Right. <laughs> okay, Joanne. We've also had a lot of data um, out from Europe over the past week. We're like I said, we're recording this on Thursday, so we've got some of the national prints for euro area inflation. Um, and by the time this goes out, we will have the full picture um, for the euro area print. But we don't have the luxury of of seeing that today. Um, so, how are you viewing the growth picture and and the inflation picture with with what we know today in in the euro area? Yes, it's been a pretty interesting week. I think we've got PMIs uh, last week that kind of indicated a bit of a softness in the economy, kind of growth expectations and a, and a kind of stagnation of growth was once again one of the biggest questions that the market had and that we had as well. But I think the inflation figures today, it helps to put things into perspective a little bit, just in terms of how the ECB are likely to see things. Um, the inflation headline numbers are coming down um, and core as well, but we did see an uptick for Germany driven by transportation costs, um, given some kind of um, subsidies put in place last year. But I do think that the question for me is that we still have core and headline inflation for euro area estimated to be 5% and estimated to be above 5% uh, based on tomorrow's numbers. Um, I think for me that the question really is, is, is that enough to do something for the Hawks and the committee? The ECB is clearly very divided where the doves see things quite differently to the Hawks and the committee. And I do think we need to see some kind of convergence, which I think ultimately will be driven by the data. Um, the numbers so far don't necessarily look to me like they will bring the Hawks kind of back into back into the more con converging to the more dovish or neutral 
um, end of the spectrum. So I think that the question for me really is what pulls the two sides together, which I think um, really is the data. Uh, so that being said, I think we're not really pushing back against what markets are pricing peak rate at the moment. Our call is for 375%, but there clearly is risks given um, how the Hawks see, see inflation and also given what Lagarde has really emphasized, which is that underlying inflation really is what they're looking at, uh, apart from just headline inflation. Away from the data then, we also had a lot of news this week um, on the supply side. We have had updated um, supply outlooks from Germany, from the EU, uh, I think from Italy as well, although I'm sure you'll correct me if I'm wrong on that. Um, what, what are your thoughts on supply and the curve going forward, you know, on this side of the Atlantic, you know, both in the UK and the Euro area, we've talked about supply being one of the key drivers for our um, kind of outright bearish view on rates for a long time. Is that still the case after this week? Yes, it's been a pretty interesting week as well in terms of supply. Uh, I think Germany to me was particularly interesting just because they revised down their issuance based on energy prices and those having moderated. Uh, I think what's interesting to me is just that, I suppose in our Q2 update, Germany kind of did specifically note that they were not going to change issuance because of energy prices. And clearly they've had a change in stance since then. To me, that does suggest that Further down the line, potentially in Q4, we could actually see more cuts coming in in terms of how issuance is, uh, as long as energy prices remain where they are for now. Um, we've also seen other countries, for example, the Netherlands revised down their plans in really driven by energy. Uh, Italy has also come to us with numbers. We're still doing some um, work on that, but I think the idea is that that's also lower than what we had initially expected. So I think the supply picture does seem like it's moderating relative to what we had sort of seen it at the start of the year. But I think what's interesting to note is even though it has moderated, it is still marginal. Uh, I think the biggest impact really is from net supply, which has stepped up quite drastically just because the ECB has stopped being a net buyer of bonds. Um, and obviously, starting next month, we'll start to um, roll off maturing bonds in full. So really, the supply picture, once again, there's lots of supply, but the demand side is the one that we think still has to catch up with what we're seeing in terms of supply. So in terms of the curve, I think our views are still quite similar to what we've said before. We think that the curve should steepen and supply really being one of the main drivers in terms of why we see that steepening having to happen. Um, that's enough for me. I think we'll move to the UK now. So Imogen, higher for longer was a key message from uh, Sintra this week. So what does that suggest for your bank rate views? And do you think there's kind of upside surprise that going forward? So listeners will know that we updated our bank rate view uh, two weeks ago now, I think, to expecting a peak rate of 6%. Um, and I think we spoke about this last week on the pod about the fact that, you know, I think it's pretty telling that despite the fact that we've had this major hawkish reaction function shift from the Bank of England, we've had Bailey kind of reinforcing that hawkish rhetoric at Sintra. We've had data that continues to surprise to the upside. The market has struggled to reprice materially north of 6%. I know that it's kind of above 6% now, but it hasn't repriced significantly above that. And I think that that's pretty telling that, you know, in line with our view, there is a limit to just how far bank rate can go and how far the BOE is kind of willing to hike rates and, and risk pushing the economy 
over into an ever deeper recession. Probably two things I would say that, that reinforce that this week. The first is around um, Thames Water and the risks surrounding the utility sector. I think there was perhaps a lot of overhyped concerns about this being another canary in the coal mine for a leveraged industry in the UK. Um, and whilst it's you know very early days, it's clearly a very fluid situation. Um, it's starting to feel as though maybe those concerns were perhaps overdone. And it's certainly not our base case that this is another kind of crisis in the UK. But it is still a reminder of the fact that, you know, we're leaving this decade of very easy monetary policy. And as we leave that behind and very quickly enter a long period of high interest rates, there are going to be risks that, that surround that. And clearly the higher that, that rates go, um, the, the greater those risks are. The second point that I think really reinforces the view that probably 6% would be high enough is just going back to this lag transmission mechanism. We've talked a long time before about why you know, we've we had held this more dovish view because the monetary policy transmission channel to households via mortgages is working. It's just taking a lot a long time to work and longer than we previously expected, given the changing structure of, of the mortgage market. But it's twice now that the Bank of England have referenced this idea that perhaps they also need to look closely at the transmission channel via private renters as well. Um, they mentioned it in the minutes officially, and then Pill also brought it up. Uh, Pill, the chief economist, also brought that up um, in his panel at Sintra earlier this week. Um, and I think that's important because a lot of the pushback that there has been around this kind of mortgage transmission channel is that only 30% of households have a mortgage and therefore the pass-through just won't be that powerful this time around because fewer households have mortgages than in previous um, hiking cycles. Now that's not wrong that 30% only have, have a mortgage, but we've kind of, um, you know, given our arguments for why we think that that's the wrong thing to focus on. Um, but also introducing this idea of private renters and assessing the transmission mechanism is important because obviously alongside that 30%, you also have another 20% of the housing market, which are private renters. Um, and there's very clear ONS data that shows that a, private renters are not at the top of the income distribution. Um, private renters are generally paying about half of their disposable income on rent. And that's also not where the stock of savings is concentrated. So very quickly, once you combine the 30% of households that are mortgage holders with that kind of 20% that are private renters, um, you know, you, you get to the, the vast majority of households really being hit by this higher rate transmission mechanism, which will start to drag on consumption pretty quickly and pretty heavily, we think. So we're comfortable with the idea that, that rates need to go considerably higher than here, but I don't think the risks are necessarily skewed to the upside on that 6% level. So the other thing we've also seen is that the gilt curve has continued to aggressively flatten this week. Uh, what are your thoughts there and do you think that uh, looks about right? Yeah, I think there's been a sort of global fixed income flattening, but certainly gilts have led the way um, on a week where there hasn't been much sort of gilt specific news, I would say, you know, all the data has been coming from elsewhere. Um, I think that that's partly been positioning led and that's what's kind of exacerbated this flatness in the curve. 
Um, and we went through last week, you know, this idea that at the long end of the curve, markets are weighing up a higher bank rate, but then what that means in terms of recessionary risk. So I won't repeat the points about why I think that actually all the supply concerns that we've already mentioned, you know, hundreds of times before on this podcast should outweigh those recessionary concerns. But I do think we're now looking at, you know, the curve is now at extreme flats by historical standards. And yes, it has been flatter before with front end rates at these levels, but that was in you know, crisis periods, I would say, against an economic backdrop that actually is not one that we're expecting to occur right now. You know, the only times that the curve has been flatter with front end rates at these levels was during the very early 2000s. So after we had the dot com uh, bubble crash and then in the global financial crisis. Now, although we think that 6% in bank rate is going to be uh, a fairly significant headwind to the economy, uh, and we will have kind of negative quarters, consecutive negative quarters of growth by the end of this year, which would be a technical recession. We're not thinking about this in terms of a real deep recession, but more just a shallow yet protracted environment, protracted slowdown, I should say. Um, which means that I think it's it's kind of uh, misplaced to suggest that curves should be flatter just because they have been flatter before with front end rates at these levels. Um, you know, we've been proven time and time again this year that supply does matter. Um, the underperformance of gilts at the back end in, has been driven in a large part by this supply indigestion. Um, and it's been very well telegraphed that we're entering into um, a pretty heavy supply month next month. Um, and so I think once month end is out the way, um, we could resume a kind of more normal dynamic and, and we may well see this an end to this sort of persistent flattening that, that we've seen in the UK. Uh, but it won't be long before <laughs> that will be proved right or wrong. Um, so I will stop there. I think that's probably enough for this week. Thank you both for joining me and thank you to our listeners for listening in. Just a reminder that if you liked today's episode, please don't forget to hit the like button or click subscribe so you can get the latest episodes as soon as they're available. Thanks. See you next week.